Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark 14, starting with verse 12. And the last time we looked at the true treasure, you know, Mary was ministering to Jesus and she broke the flask of spikenard and poured it on the Lord. And it was really prophetic what Mary did. She really believed that Jesus said what he meant and meant what he said, that he was going to go to the cross and die for her sins as well as everybody else's. So the true treasure, as Judas was looking at the spikenard, Mary was looking at Jesus. So we covered that, and really there's some great applications in our lives too. A lot of nice stuff in the world that we could get, that we could attain, but really we're losing sight of everything, and it means nothing if we don't have a relationship with God. Today we're going to look at the Passover fulfilled, and we're going to break this up, and I always find it good to digest. You know I'm teaching it and saying, oh, I know this, but the trick is or to get it from me to you so you completely understand what's going on. Everybody's at different levels here. So we're going to break it up into three sections. We're only going to cover about 13 verses, but the sections are going to be, number one, the Passover prepared, right? We know about the Passover. It was told to the children of Israel since the Passover, thousands of years ago, to keep celebrating it. God delivered the children of Israel, not only from the punishment or the plague of the death of the firstborn, but also delivering them out of Egypt. So that's going to be the first stage. The second stage is going to be the Passover obediently celebrated, Right? Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, came from the Jewish line. Right? We Gentiles, a lot of us, came a lot, lot later into the fold. So the Passover is celebrated as observant Jews. And the third part really is the Passover fulfilled. How does Jesus fulfill the Passover? Now, what I need to do is, between the actual Passover and deliverance out of Egypt to Jesus Christ was, you know, over, was a few thousand years, so what I'd like to do is just kind of show you some amazing symbolism. You know, sometimes teachers make symbolism out of everything. But in this particular um, portion of scripture, Exodus 11, Exodus 12, Exodus 13, about the Passover, we see some pretty interesting symbolism with Jesus Christ. So before I explain to you what Jesus did and all that kind of stuff, let me just kind of go, if we could go to that slide and show you basically the event in the Old Testament and then move to the fulfillment or the understanding in the New Testament. So if you look at the Old Testament, it says the 10th plague was to kill the firstborn in Egypt. God had 10 plagues that he rained down on Egypt. And the 10th plague was the most devastating of all. It took the lives of the firstborn, man and beast. So it was a pretty serious uh, plague. The symbolism or the fulfillment is God's judgment on sin. Right? Why does God judge? Because he has to deal with sin. He's a God of justice. Right? He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. And we really determine on whose term, on which terms that we'll meet him at, which is the blessing in all that. He gives us a choice. The second thing we see is, and again, I take this from all three chapters in, in Exodus 11, 12, 13, is to stave off judgment, a male lamb without blemish was selected. This was fulfilled by the sinless Christ. He was a male and what did John say, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming prophetically because he was filled with the Holy Spirit in John 1.29? 
John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Certainly a reference spiritually to the Passover Lamb. Pretty amazing. The third thing we see is that the whole assembly from the congregation participated in killing the Lamb. And we find the symbolism or the fulfillment is that Jesus was largely rejected by his own. Isaiah 53, especially the spiritual leaders who were supposed to embrace him. And Jerusalem was judged as a result of the spiritual system rejecting their Messiah. Actually, Pastor Jason and I had a conversation about this. Pastor Jason is actually a small part Jewish. And we said that we agreed that whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or some of those prophets of old, if they would have seen Jesus come, they would have accepted him. But they also were on the outs with the religious system. You know, and this is what happens in religion. It, it can become corrupt when it's, it's, it's humanistic, when it's man-centered, and we forget about God. That's a problem. The fourth thing is that the lamb was roasted in the fire, and parts not eaten were wholly consumed by the fire. And this is a sobering picture of the absoluteness of judgment. Judgment is it's serious. That's why when you understand the Bible, and you are appreciative and thankful for the fact that God saved you through Jesus Christ, his Son, you want to tell everybody, and I know I've been guilty of this, sometimes you want it so bad that you end up irritating people. <laughs> so, but you know, the, it's, the zeal is, is good, but it's, you, know, you have to present it in a way that is not you know, judgmental or telling somebody what to do because everybody comes to the Lord in their own time. But this is the excitement that we have. If we can move on to the next slide, okay, number five. <laughs> five, six, seven, and eight will be coming up any minute. There we go. Number five, the event. Only the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel would stave off judgment. Symbolism fulfillment is that nobody escapes the punishment of sin without Christ. Remember, God is a holy God. Pastor Jay, Pastor Jay and I were talking about this in some depth, and I said, you know, I don't know about you, but I think that if some in the children of Israel said, ah, I don't believe that stuff. I know I'm Jewish, but, and you know, people do today. The whole God thing, you know, I'm not going to put the blood on there. That their firstborn would have been taken too, okay? The only way to stop this judgment was through the blood of the lamb being put, on, and it sounds gross, and blood is horrible. I've seen blood in emergency services for 23 years. And it's a sobering picture of how bad sin is and how offensive it is to God. And the fulfillment is that only with the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, are we free from judgment as well. Much worse than the plague of the firstborn. I mean, this is an eternity in hell. Yes, we do preach that here. We don't do gospel light. We do what the Bible says. Jesus spoke more about judgment in hell than he spoke about heaven. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. And nobody has to. Number six, sanctification went with the sacrifice. Number one, or A, removal of leaven from the home, and B, dedicating the firstborn to God as a result. What do we see in the fulfillment? Is that as, as a condition of salvation, we're to be sanctified. You know, we can try to be moral people, not being Christians, but what's it based on? What's the foundation? Because everybody's moral, morality is different. A, we live in a pluralistic society. Well, you believe this, and I believe that. Well, I think it sh you shouldn't kill. Well, so do I, but I also believe shouldn't cheat on my taxes. But I believe that government wastes money, so I don't mind cheating on my taxes. So what happens is you have these different standards. So if we really are to be sanctified, to, make, to be made holy, to be moral people, it has to be based on something. 
So in the Old Testament, it was more of a forced, um, a legislated, so, so to speak, in God's law, uh, sanctification to be, made, to be made holy. But in the New Testament, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that comes with the, with the package. It's really nice. You know, like I said in the prayer, people don't want to come to Jesus because they feel like they're unworthy. You know, if the Lord's calling you, come. Let him deal with the other part of it. You know, if you wait to get good, I, I still wouldn't be a Christian. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 20 years ago, I finally stopped running from, from him. But I, I still wouldn't be here if, I, if that was my continuing mindset. So sanctification process is as a result of Christ. Here it was legislated here. It comes naturally because we're new creatures in Christ. Number seven, after the Passover, the Lord delivered them out of Egypt into the promised land. Egypt was a type of the old world or the world, the, this world of the flesh, this fallen world, and the old life of sin. The promised land is a type of the new life with Christ. Now, did they make mistakes in the promised land? Did they still do things wrong? Yes, they did. So do we. But it was, it was different, right? Remember, even some of the Jews, a lot of them murmured in the wilderness. Oh, God's going to take us to this promised land. We miss the leeks and the onions, and we want to go back to Egypt. It's, that's, that's the flesh rearing its ugly head. It's coming up, okay? And eight, this remembrance of deliverance is to be passed on to your children forever. That was a commandment, evangelization. When we know what God has done for us, we want to pass it on. You know, and, and where do I read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34? The Old Testament prophet spoke about the, the age of grace that we live in, where you don't have to tell somebody, you need to know the law. We desire to know what God wants. So that's another picture of, of the Holy Spirit in the age of grace. I love, I love when you can tie in the Old and the New Testament together. It's really neat stuff. Also, the Lamb's uh, blood delivered from physical death, Christ's blood delivers us from judgment and, uh, and, and eternity. You know, he, he brings us into new life with his shed blood. So, jumping in, verse 12. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And the disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So the first out of three in this block is the Passover is prepared. As Israel was preparing their hearts and preparing their homes, Jesus was preparing the Passover, and he was also preparing the Passover of himself. He knew what awaited him. The disciples, in a lot of ways, were still clueless, but Jesus was very sober about knowing that he had to go to the cross. As the lamb, the actual animal, was scrutinized for a defect, right, in the Old Testament, Jesus was also scrutinized by the religious system for defects. As a matter of fact, and we, and we talk about the defects as far as sin. There's the transfer from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In John 8, 46, Jesus said to them, Which of you can prove me guilty of sin? Not one of them answered him. Well, if I go to, you know, if I go here or, you know, I'm in the presence of my wife, I certainly wouldn't say that. 
because she can very easily, you know, a man cannot say this, a woman can't say this, only the sinless Christ could say this without cringing and waiting for an answer. You know what I'm saying? So he was also scrutinized, and he was without defect. Now I find this interesting with this whole man with the pitcher in the upper room. It wasn't like Jesus texted the guy and said, hey, um, these two disciples are coming, and this is what we're, they're wearing. This is the color robes they're wearing. He just, he was the son of God. Did he prepare it? I'm sure he prepared it. How did he know that exactly when they walked in, they would recognize the two disciples? So him being God knew these things, right? He had that foresight. He had that prophetic foresight. So it was just as he said. Now, I just want to actually digress for a moment, then we'll go into the next block, is, you know, I love looking into the scripture and seeing more examples of leadership, discipleship you know, mentoring somebody, that kind of thing. So I want to break this up really into two parts. I know it's such a small portion of Scripture, but check this out. Let's start with leadership and mentoring. Here, example by Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate leader. If we're interested in leadership, we should always look to the Bible, look to Jesus, right, to see what a leader does and how we can emulate that. So a good leader gets things done, takes charge, Delegates authority, leads by example, and is proactive. You know, I look at my bivocational world, and uh, if I'm not responding to an emergency, you know, I'm here at the church pastoring or making decisions, people expect me to make decisions. They, especially the hard decisions, you know, you usually pass it up, pass the buck upward, you know what I'm saying? And that's okay. As a matter of fact, I sometimes make so many decisions that are difficult that when I'm home, my wife will say to me, where do you want to go to dinner? Or what do you want to do this summer? And I always say, hey, baby, whatever you want. You know, I get tired of making decisions. Now, I come off as a real pliable husband, okay? But you know, the secret's out now. <laughs> but, you know, you just, you, as a leader, you have to make decisions. And if that's something that you're interested in, don't be afraid to fail. Because failure is a great teacher, right? And you almost kind of make a mental note of all the failures in the past, and you you have a check mark there and say, no, I don't want to do that again. So we try to emulate as much as possible. Jesus was, was perfect, and we're not going to be perfect. But we try to look to him to see how we can emulate that leadership um, role, in a sense. Now, let's go down to the disciple, or the apprentice, or the Timothy. Right? And this was exemplified by the two disciples. Luke's Gospel tells us it was actually Peter and John that were sent to do the Lord's bidding, to have the, everything get set up for the Passover. See, these guys were given vague instructions to take care of business, and they did it. They did so without barraging the Lord with questions. They did it without questioning him behind his back. Now, if you read the Gospels, you find that the disciples were not what we would call yes-men. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in their leisure time, they would question. They would, you know, you're going to go to the cross. That doesn't sound right. You know, so these guys weren't yes men, but when the Lord needed them to do something important, he had their trust. He had their trust. When we're in a position of leadership, there'll be times that we direct those discipleship, disciple-type people, and if we have their trust, then we have to be very careful with that trust. You know, and this goes out, and this is a digression here, but it goes out to authority figures, parents, spiritual leaders, pastors, a boss. Be careful with trust. 
Don't abuse it. You see what happens in the elections. Every few years, you know, it, it, it just keeps flip-flopping. Every few years, it's another party that's in power. Then the people feel that their trust was betrayed, and they get angry, and they, they're going to teach the, the political leaders a lesson, and they're going to flip parties. You see this happen back and forth. You know, you, you've been long, alive long enough. People are not happy as, as when leaders betray their trust. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good examples that we can take from this. Verse 17, the second section. It says, In the evening he, Jesus, came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Then he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. This is prophesied in Scripture. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. This is two. The Passover is, is celebrated. Now, this is amazing how Jesus Christ is bridging two covenants here. He's bridging two testaments. This is so impressive. It's like here's Jesus, you know, here's the old covenant, he's tethered to it. And then here's the new covenant, and he's got to bring them together. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the, the law of Moses, I came to fulfill it. Sometimes in our society we have this idea, it's either this or it's that. Jesus said, no, it's a fulfillment. It's, it's a culmination. It's a completion. It's a maturity. Different words, right? He bridges these two covenants. And this is awesome. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are Jewish. I have a lot of friends who are Jewish believers. And it's great because if they trust you, they will listen to what you say when you take an interest in their Old Testament. They want to know what you have to say. I want you to turn your attention to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Several centuries written before Jesus came in the form of a man. I want to prove to you, now this is all accepted, this has been codified by the time of Christ. Everybody knew who Jeremiah was. They trusted Jeremiah. I'm going to prove to you that if you read the Old Testament, the Jews were to expect a second testament or a second covenant. This is fascinating. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. It wasn't Jeremiah's opinion. The Lord said, write this. He goes, okay, I'll write it, Lord. When I will make, the Lord will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, just to make sure there's no misunderstanding, all 12 of your tribes, everybody, okay, my people. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is a direct reference to Egypt and the deliverance, right, the Passover. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is personal, folks. This isn't the, this isn't the dispensation of the law. This is, this is something that they were like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Look, they didn't understand grace. They didn't understand the church age. But when it happened, everybody understood so it's personal. I will be their God. They will be my people. You know, the law, it'll be written in their, on their hearts and their minds. No more shall every man teach his neighbor 
and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their, their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. See, in the Old Testament, teaching was big. Right? The, the stones were set up after the crossing of the Jordan. They put the stones of remembrance in, in the, the, the bed there, and then they would put it on the other side. And, and the Jews, God would say this to the Jewish patriarchs. You know, when your children and grandchildren say, Mommy, Daddy, what are those stones for? You tell them, this is when God delivered us. This is when God opened the Jordan. This is when God opened the Red Sea. This is when God took us into the Promised Land. He's saying in this new covenant, it's not necessary anymore because now it'll just be a personal relationship with God. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Amazing. So much power in this. So this is, this is definitely one to, to remember and write down. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So a few points to ponder. Number one is the setting. And we covered this when we went over John's gospel. I love doing this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I always read all four of them before I teach because I want the full picture because each writer adds a little bit different of a nuance. So I put it all together and here we have it. The setting. The seating arrangement. The seating arrangement. So you have basically this triclinium or this, this three-sided table and Jesus is in, in the center and it does appear that, that John is to his right and Judas is to his left. Now, being to the left would still be a place of honor. Remember James and John went to Jesus and said, can we sit on your right hand and your left? They didn't say which would do what. And you see Peter across motioning to the Lord. Peter finally gets the idea, maybe I should be a little humble and not always try to sit next to Jesus all the time. It's just my speculation. So Peter's motioning. You put all the Bible writers together. Um, John asks him. Jesus is talking to John, right? And he says, I'm dipping in the dish, and he gives it to Judas. So this is what's going on. So you, you get this picture of the setting of how everything's shaken up. And each, each guy, maybe either they're mouthing to Jesus or outright saying it if he was in earshot. Is it I, Lord? Could it be me? You know, who, who's betraying you? So he, too, he announces his betrayer. Before we talk about Judas, because we are, we will, let's talk about the disciples. In verse 19, it says, And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Now, in the Greek, you could also translate it, surely not I. You were expecting a negative response, but they still asked. Let's go to Jeremiah again. Jeremiah is very popular this morning. Let's go to Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The human heart, the will, the emotion, the intellect, all wrapped up into our being, our personality, what makes us unique from every other person. It says that the heart is, a, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, or alternate translation, incurably sick. Who can know it? I, the Lord, God says, only God. He can search the heart. I test the mind and to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. The disciples expected Jesus to say, no, Thomas, it's not you. No, Matthew, it's not you. John, certainly not you. But they asked him anyway, 
Because the disciples knew this scripture. They knew that their hearts could be, could be weak. It could be deceived. You know, each one of us believes our own propaganda. Each one of us is the fan of our own fan club. We're, we're all the president of our own fan clubs. This is the human heart. And what a pity it would be that we don't, at times in prayer, just ask the Lord, what is it, Lord? What is it about me? What needs to change? And that's a scary question because you will get an answer <laughs> and he will show you and guide you on how to deal with that issue. But sometimes it hurts. Sometimes those vines and those roots have grown through our hearts. And just like a, if it was the human heart, a worm or something that tangled its way through and you needed surgery, it could be very painful. There could be a recovery process. It's the same way in the spiritual sense. Brothers and sisters, at times we have to ask, listen, I'm the pastor of this church and things are going well and I still in prayer say, Lord, what is it? You know, what is it you have to show me? Because things could go really well here and one day he could replace me and say, you know what? You were completely deceived. That's a scary place to be. I think the biggest tragedy is when we meet those, especially in the church, that think they got it going on. They got it all together. They think they're the bomb. And there's nothing that needs to change about them. And I'll tell you what, when you do a marriage counseling, you get a husband and wife together that both have that idea, you're not going to get anywhere. Because nobody wants to look at themselves. They just want to point fingers at everybody else. And judgment, the Bible says, starts in the house of God. You know, God may do some things in this country. God may allow us to go down in the decline, which it looks like we're heading towards. Where's the church going to be? You know, God may have to purify us. Every church, every pastor should be saying this from the pulpit. He may have to purify us before a time where the world is going to need us. There's going to be very few servants and a lot of people that are aimless in our society that we need to reach. But unless he does some major heart surgery, we're going to be useless for the kingdom of God. Amen, brothers and sisters? This is something that we have to do in our private time to ask the Lord these questions. You know, I liken what the disciples say to Jesus to us praying. Why? Because they're talking to God. And that's what we do when we pray. We don't memorize prayers. It's like saying to God every day, Hi God, how you doing? Goodbye. Hi God, how you doing? Goodbye. Hi God. Hey, psh, will you change? Get the needle off the record there. You know, it's when we pray, it's a discussion that we have with the Lord. It's communion. Amen? So why did Judas do what he did? Let's take a little aside here. Well, I'm just going to do a little speculating. Nobody really knows. The Bible doesn't reveal it. But let's look at this. Number one, did Judas want more money? The Bible tells us that he was a de facto treasurer and he would dip into the treasury. The Bible says that he would pilfer. He would take money. Number two, did he want to force the Lord's hand to be a political messiah? So maybe in addition to more money, maybe he was looking for more power. Well, I do believe that Jesus is the messiah, but maybe he had this idea of a conquering messiah to conquer the Romans and any day he was going to put on the, the sword and the helmet and start slaying Romans. Right? He was thinking in, in earthly terms, not spiritual. Three, did he want to see who had more juice? Maybe he wanted to see which camp could give him more of an opportunity. This is what the world looks at. Money, power, opportunity. And un unfortunately, sometimes this is also seen in the church. Right? Judas was an officer of the church, wasn't he? Board member, treasurer, uh, minister, gone bad. Four, did he get offended with one of Jesus' teachings? Maybe the last one with Mary and the spikenard when he led the disciples to really castigate poor Mary trying to do a good thing and Jesus told them basically, guys, be quiet. Leave her alone. Knock it off. 
It's over. What she's doing is the right thing. People today get offended. They come into church. They hear something from the Bible and they're offended and they take it out on the church or the pastor. It's just what the scripture says. It's just what God's word says. Judas might have got offended. I don't know. Maybe a, a combination of these things. Maybe Judas got offended because Jesus often took James, John, James, John, and Peter. Jealousy in the church. Do we see jealousy in the church? Sure we do. Well, this one's getting more attention. Well, this one... Blah, 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 blah. And that's what happens. Maybe when Jesus, the last straw, was when he sent Peter and John to go prepare the Passover and Judas felt, I'm always left out. No matter how you look at this, the root was selfishness. Judas was a selfish person. Jesus was trying to think about everyone else and Judas was just thinking about Judas. Spikenard, then silver from the religious leaders. These are a few of his favorite things, you know? Not the Lord, but what he could get out of ministry. Got to think about that for a minute. There's an expression, too, to be a Judas, and that's been around for 2,000 years. That's anyone who sells somebody out out of a root of selfishness, okay? Something they, they wanted and didn't get, something that didn't turn out the way they wanted to. Again, not thinking about everyone else, just thinking about themselves. Uh, even in ministry, my pastor said, you have to have you know, a Judas o o over the years because it shows that you have a healthy ministry because Satan doesn't attack a dead church. Here's the good news. A Judas today can always repent, although it doesn't look like that's what happened to the original Judas. So we can go through periods of doing this Unfortunately, we can be like some of the disciples in some ways, but hopefully we grow and mature, and then we move forward. Verse 21. Jesus tells us basically that Scripture predicts the betrayer, but the betrayer bore personal responsibility. Right? We see this in the Scripture about the one who sat with me lifted up his heel against me. We see about the betrayal of Jesus Christ for the 30 pieces of silver. And Judas was eventually going to have to take personal responsibility when he stood before the Lord. You see, that is a, a dirty phrase in our culture. Personal responsibility. We can take the worst in society in American culture, put them on TV, let them talk, and make them look like the victims. When is it ever right to blow up a school bus full of children? When is it ever right to hurt a child? You hear some of these terrorists, they get on TV and they're interviewed and you see the, the interviewer almost have an empathy for that person. It's never right to do that. Take personal responsibility. Okay? And when judgment day comes, everyone will be held accountable for what they do and what they say. They're not going to get over on God like they, they did with Katie Couric or Larry King or any of these people. <laughs> Journalists. <laughs> say that loosely. So that's what's going to happen. Now, when we look at the scripture, we see that Jesus... Now, let's take this all into totality. Jesus dips the bread, and he gives it to Judas. That was a sign of honor and respect. The fact that Judas sat to his left was a sign of honor and respect. In John 13, we find out when we take all the, the, the Gospels together that Jesus just got done washing the disciples' feet. So that means that he washed Judas' feet. Take all these things together. God is a merciful God. He wanted to break Judas' heart. Don't do this. Even Judas could have betrayed Jesus, fulfilled the scripture, and then repented, and then jumped back with the twelve. He could have done that, but he didn't. He hung himself. 
repentance. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's something that's necessary. Change of direction. Give the opportunity to do the right thing. But check this out. Jesus washed his feet. He gave him the bread. He had him sit next to him on his left side, but he fell short of one thing. John 13. Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do it quickly. He stopped short, I believe, of communion. Now, after I put the message together, I flipped through. I like Warren Wiersbe. I'm like, yes, he says the same thing I do. You know, not that Warren Wiersbe knows everything, but, but it's, you know, we have similar styles in, in understanding the scripture, and, and it's so cool to, you know, to go through something and pray and then look to somebody else, and they say the same exact thing or they have the same mindset that you have. So I, I really like that. Here's the deal. God can woo us. God can love us. God can send his son to die for our sins. But at some point, every person has to repent and turn to Jesus and trust him as their Lord and Savior. Trust what he did on the cross. If they don't, they're lost. And therefore, they cannot have communion or close fellowship with God. Understand that. People today can be successful. They can have good marriages. They could have wonderful children. They can, and you sometimes look at a person who's an unbeliever and say, why are they so blessed? The Bible says the rain falls on the good and the wicked. See, if God would just kind of wave the carrot all the time and say, well, anybody who comes to me, you're going to get this success. And oftentimes it's the opposite. You become a Christian and then you find out that you can't continue doing what you did and you have crisis of conscience. You know, you run into crossroads in life. So we look at others and, and they seem to be doing well. They're blessed. You know, God blesses them, but they can't have, and they can pray too. But if they don't have that relationship with the Lord, it really means nothing. You know, it's dead on the other side of the connection on the phone. In order to have fellowship with God, it has to be through Jesus Christ. So Judas could have all these benefits. He even took money, and Jesus didn't, he, he just, he let it happen. And we talked about this two Sundays ago. Why would he do that? Judas had, it seemed, everything. And now he was going to get money from the religious leaders. But he was lost. He didn't partake in the communion with his Lord and Savior because he rejected him. And that's a lesson for all of us today. You know, there's a lot of Christians in the Christian community. You know, their wives are saved, or their husbands are saved, or family members are saved, and they think it's going to rub off on them. It's every person stands before the Lord alone. Alone. The big picture here is that all the disciples betrayed Jesus in some way. One ratted on him. It's an old term. Judas ratted on him. Uh, one denied him. That was Peter. And the rest of them fled. But they all repented, save one. On a smaller scale, brothers and sisters, there's things that God expects from us, and we have, I guess, what I would call micro-betrayals. You know? We're not Judas, but we have to repent sometimes because the Lord calls on us to do stuff. He calls on us to stay strong, and we fail. And if you're a Christian long enough, it's happened at least a few times. And that's something we also need to repent. Repent's a scary word, but all it means is from the heart, Lord, I, I, I'm convicted. I, I shouldn't have done that. It's you and the Lord. I, I really want to change. I really want you to help me. You know, it's got to come from the heart. It's not an outward thing. It's an inward thing. Verse 22, last block. It says, but of, oops, wrong, wrong uh, chapter there. <laughs> Verse 22 and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, 
this is my body. Is can also be translated in the Greek as represents my body. This represents my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the Passover was prepared. The Passover was celebrated. And now comes something truly remarkable. The Passover is fulfilled even before it happens. Jesus is that bridge between both covenants. He expresses it in symbolism. He, ahead of time, talks about you know, this whole idea of the Lord's Supper or communion before it even happens. And then when he goes to the cross, is resurrected, ascends into heaven, they continue to celebrate this as we do, as we will next Sunday, and we'll talk more about that as well. So the Passover is fulfilled. See, ceremonies could not save the Jewish people. These ceremonies pointed, and, and we talked about this in the beginning, of what the Messiah would bring. He would bring that salvation. And these are called types in the Old Testament. This, the, the blood of the Lamb, is a type of Christ, right? Looking, you know, when they were bitten by the, the serpents and they lifted up a pole and the serpent was, and they would look to that and trust that it would heal them, the people were healed. That was a type of Christ. So there was a lot of types of Christ. David, in some ways, was a type of Christ. They say that loosely because David sinned and Jesus didn't. So we look at these Old Testament and then New Testament fulfillment. Now let's look at the Lord's Supper, Okay. The bread broken signified the Lord's broken body for us at the cross. Now, I'm going to say this. Jesus said some things, and here's, here's the rub, and I'm going to really, in the next few minutes, really try to dispel some myths and false teachings about communion and what happens during communion. Jesus would always use these parables, and a parable just basically meant that he would use something that they could see. Oh, a wedding's going on. Let me tell you about the, the ten virgins who are waiting for the, you know, the groom to come. Oh, look, people are picking, you know, food in, in the field. Oh, let me tell you about the harvest. And so what Jesus would do is he would take this, take things that was, he was just the master. Because remember, a lot of them weren't educated. Like, okay, we're in 2014 in New Jersey. A lot of people here are very accomplished, hold degrees and stuff. Go back 2,000 years to the Middle East, and a lot of people were poor. They couldn't afford an eighth grade education. So Jesus had to reach them on their level. He couldn't talk over them because that would miss the whole point of saving them. So he would use these illustrations, and it would blow their doors off, because like, oh yeah, I get that. Yeah, the guys are picking, and, and the harvest of God, and people are like the, the ripe fruit. Yeah, that's really cool, Jesus. So Jesus took these illustrations, and I can almost watch him take the unleavened bread, the matzah, and say, this is my body. You know, nice, square, beautiful, you know, burn marks on it. And she says, this is my body. <laughs> oh. That's, well, maybe he wasn't kidding about the crucifixion. He just was a master of, of helping people understand through illustration. This is my blood, and it would be in the, in the container. And then he would have the cup, and he would pour it, spilled out for you. Wow, the spilling of blood. That, yeah, that looks like blood being spilled out. Unfortunately, the denomination I came from, and even many denominations today, still teach that Jesus becomes he becomes the piece of bread and you eat him and you drink his blood and, and that's really messed up because Leviticus 17 10 and 11 God says don't ever drink blood so here's a Jewish Messiah with his Jewish disciples saying here drink my blood 
Jesus would be breaking the law. He never broke the law. He fulfilled the law. Pagans drank blood. God didn't want his people to be like that. They did some sick things and mutilated people and drank their blood. That, not my people, God said. No way. So let's, let's understand this and let's go through it. In Matthew 26, Jesus, he records Jesus saying that his blood would be shed for the remissions of sins, which can mean the forgiveness of sin, but it can also mean a deliverance or a pardon for sin. Now, how many of you know that when a president, governors too, when they leave office, they can pardon people that are in prison or in trial? Or You know that? Okay, presidential pardons. And guess what? The person just, every president does it. The person gets away scot-free no matter what they did. I don't agree with the process, but that's what they do. In God's economy, if he's going to let us go scot-free because of our sins, somebody better pay for that sin. Because unlike presidents and governors, God is a God of justice. Justice still must be served. So when, when we are forgiven for our sins, somebody had to pay the price for that sins, and that was Jesus Christ at the, at the cross. So he said, the shedding of my blood, going back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, right? The blood of the animal was shed as a temporary covering for the sins of the people. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that innocent animal that shed its blood. So I'm trying to really make this completely, you know, digestible here. In Luke 22, it records Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me, not transform my blood and my flesh into this piece of bread and this drink. He said, do this in remembrance or recollection. Remember me. Right? Remember me. In John 6, 63, many of his disciples left because he said, you must feed on my flesh and drink my blood. And a person who's from that persuasion will say to me, aha, here it is. Don't take the Bible out of context, brother. <laughs> Let's read the rest of what was said. He was weeding out the true disciples from the false disciples because what did he say after that? He said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So it seems like he negated everything he just said about feeding on his flesh. You know, don't nibble on my fingernail. It's not going to do anything for you. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, meaning the antecedent, what he just said, are spirit, they are life. He was not speaking literally. He said that in the same breath. Are we all, are we all getting this? Okay, because I just want to make sure I'm making it make sense here. This is tremendous revelation that we read about. This is for God, a, a way for God to say, not only remember me, remember the sacrifice, Okay, have fellowship with me, have communion with me. So we pray, we get together as believers, we rejoice, we share stories about our testimonies, um, we take communion. These are all ways to continue to tie us with the living God. And still much of the world says, eh, I'm doing well in life, I don't need, it's good for you. Wow. But I can't really get tweaked because it took me about six or seven or eight evangelists, I was a stubborn one, <laughs> to finally come to the Lord. And I literally said to myself, why do I keep running from him? He's been after me my whole life. So I finally just gave in and here I am. By the grace of God, go I. Even the baby said amen. That was awesome. <laughs> so, so, tremendous revelation here. What is he saying? Matthew 26, 29, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Remember, not blood. He goes back to, this is the fruit of the vine. Until I drink it new with you, my disciples, my followers, in my Father's kingdom. 
You know how I, I say at communion? I get so excited, you know, this really gets me jazzed up. When I talk about communion, I say, you know, there's a lot of churches that take communion, it's somber and it's depressing and it's, it's fearful and what if, what if, am I on the church's list of those that can't take communion this week? It's, that's not according to scripture. So here we, you know, the Apostle Paul says to reflect, make sure your heart is right before you take communion. That's important. But he says, but take it after you have that reflection, that personal reflection. Don't tell me your sins. It's between you and the Lord. Once you've worked that out, then partake of communion. And we always have that moment. But here's the beauty. Communion, you know, we, we remember the Lord's suffering. And it is part somber and respectful. But he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink it new with you guys. You see this fruit of the vine? We're, we're going we're to partake of this again. Me, you, all the other believers. Did that happen in the last 2,000 years? Not that I know of. So we get to look forward to a victory celebration in the new, in the new kingdom, in the new millennium. God's going to set everything back up so it's right again. And that's when he's going to be drinking that fruit of the vine in that new dispensation. So that's what we get to look forward to. We look back to the sacrifice. We look forward to the redemption. And if we happen to pass away before then, we get to be with the Lord. How do you lose in that situation? Do you, can you lose? No, it's the best deal on earth because uh, it goes through eternity. Let's leave it at this. Jesus, even before his crucifixion, set up a celebration and a reminder of what he would do for us at the cross. In addition, in our darkest times now, we know, number one, that the Lord loved us, past tense, and we know that he continually loves us, present tense, and he will continue to love us, future. You know what's amazing? He, because I guess people are so skeptical because of the way things are in society. You know, I love you until so you can't do something for me anymore. And I don't love you anymore. This is our society. Oh, look, you bought me something. It's what I always wanted. I love you. It's an emotional experience. It's not based on anything. There's no sacrifice there. That's why we wonder. So, so God loves us. Will there be a point in eternity where he just kind of gets fed up with us, does away with us, and starts with the, another, another human race? No. The Bible tells us in Revelation that Jesus still bears the marks of the cross. It's amazing. It's eternal. He still bears the marks of his love for us. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Something we need to get jazzed up about. So, for those of you that don't know the Lord, that have come into this church this morning, the ball is now in your court. And only you know if you're saved or not. Only you know if you have a relationship with him. Love is not a feeling. The love that God expresses is a sacrificial love. He gave up his son so that we could have life. The Lord went the distance to open the door to fellowship with God and the promise of eternal life. And that, my friends, sums up the Passover and the communion. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.